0: Well, we're gonna talk a little bit about hopes today. Um, so we, the kind of theme thing from Micah, I think is hope, mercy, and, and, um, and grace. And I think uh, our hopes really are important because what we, what we hope in sets the trajectory of our lives. Uh, we have all sorts of hopes. You know, some of them are small, like I hope it doesn't rain today, which I think might come true. Um, some of them are big, like I hope my son has friends that he can count on when he's older. Those kind of things. The bigger the hope, the more important it is that our lives revolve around it. The more that we give our lives to, the more important the hopes that we have. So I think it, it's important for us to have the right kind of hopes. Otherwise, our lives are going to be on the wrong trajectory. If we're hoping in something, then we're going to put our energy in something that's not going to give us the thing that we want. Or it does give us a thing that we want, and it's not good for us. So we get into trouble with the wrong kinds of hopes. It's a bit like mountain biking. I, I used to mountain bike a lot. I haven't done it in years now. Um, but the trick to not falling off your bike is to not looking, not looking right down at your tire, not looking right at whatever the, the root or the tree might be in front of you, but to be looking down the trail where you want to go. If you look off, if you're like looking over here, you're, just, you're gonna eat it, you're gonna die. Well, you may not die, depending on where you are. Um, now, I was mountain biking in Florida, which everyone thinks is funny, because there are no mountains in Florida. It's basically the flattest place in the world. But there is this, uh, where where I went to uni, There is was a, a place nearby with an abandoned rock quarry. And so it was, it was lots of ups and downs and stuff, but it's like a rock quarry, so if you fell off, you would feel it, and uh, I mean, you're like your back would skid down rocks until it's, it's not good. So, you, yeah, um, it's just a yeah, we're just going to get gross today. I'm uh, already <laughs> talking about <laughs> using blood to sign the Connect card. Um, what kind of church is this? Uh, but uh, so you want to make sure you're you're looking the right way. Now, also, Christine and I went to Colorado for our, for our honeymoon, and we did some mountain biking there. And then it's not, it's not in a rock quarry. That's like a cliff. Edge. And if you look on the wrong way there, like you will die. So it's important to make sure that you're looking the right way because you want to be headed the right way. The more rugged the terrain, it's all the more important to know where you're looking to. And looking to the wrong place means you're going to fall. And the same is true for our hopes. If we place our hopes in uh, the wrong things, we will fall because we'll be let down. We're left hopeless. And we all have these kind of hopeless hopes like my job or my bank account or um, the friends I have or a partner, or the partner I currently have or the partner I want. Um, sec- we, we all think these things, my family, alcohol, whatever, we all think these things are going to give us security, safety, and satisfaction, all the things that we really want. But by themselves, if those are what we're hoping for, if that's like the ultimate thing we're hoping for, they're empty. We all have hopeless hopes, all of us. I mean, how is something like money really going to uh, give us the satisfaction we crave? Money creates the opposite. Like, money creates dissatisfaction. I have never, I've rarely been satisfied with the money that I have. I don't know if you guys are in the same boat. Money is never faithful to us. And these things always let us down. And if we say we follow Jesus and yet find our hopes somewhere else, that's what the Bible calls idol worship. In the Old Testament, they were literal idols, like gold or silver or wooden or whatever, and that sometimes those meant to represent a god, or sometimes those were actually the gods themselves. And so the word idol worship wasn't a metaphor for something, it was the actual thing. It was worshiping the idol. Now in our time today, we don't call them idols, but we have all these different kinds of hopes. And hope is what, is what worship is. When worship isn't directed to God, we're hopeless here on earth, and we only have hopelessness to look to in the future. And so we need someone to rescue us from our own hopelessness that we've created for ourselves, to direct our eyes where we ought to belong, because we don't want to skid off some rocks. We don't want to fall off some cliff edge. I mean, by ourselves, that's what happens. We will experience hopelessness in this world, and when we come face-to-face with God, we will experience ultimate hopelessness by ourselves. So only Jesus can lead us out of our hope problem. And we're hopeless unless our hope is in the Lord who breaks through. So this first section we're going to look, um, and if you have your Bibles or your app open, just, just keep it open to Micah 1. Uh, we're going to look at the first seven verses where it talks about the Lord coming down. Or really, what happens when the Holy God meets sinful humanity? Spoiler alert, not so good, as you guys heard. Like, wow, this is, this is a pick-me-up kind of sermon. Now, just to um, set the stage, uh, this is God talking, not just to Israel, not to just to some obscure people group or some small geography kind of thing like we don't really know about except for a map, but it's to everybody. Verse 2 says, here you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it. So this isn't just a one kind of small group like that happened like you know, millennia ago. This is to us because that, that's us. So this is God speaking to us. And as a quick side note, this is why we spend so much time learning about the Bible, because we believe that these words are God's words to us. So every single Sunday, we hear God speaking to us through his word. And that's why we spend a lot of time studying it and, and spend um, effort learning it, because he has spoken these words to us. So anytime that you are by yourself and you open up the Bible during the morning or whatever time you might, you might read, that is God speaking to you. It's amazing we get to hear God's words to us all the time. And now, from the beginning, though, (laughs) we're off to a bad start because God is going to bear witness against us. That's rarely a good thing. God's saying, "I will be a witness against you." Who's saying that? God. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? So prepare yourselves. It's not going to be pretty. What happens when the Lord comes down? Well, first he confronts sinful humanity. The sovereign Creator, Lord of all, the one in charge of the heavens and the earth, is coming down to earth. What's going to happen? Verses 3 and 4. The mountains melt. The valleys are ripped apart. That's apparently another thing that happens. Micah, the visual kind of storyteller that he is, he's saying from the highest points, from the mountains to the lowest points of the valleys, all of it is, is being like, destroyed under God who's coming down to earth. This isn't the kind of nice old man in the sky view of God. This is a God who's passionate and God is above everything. Notice, in order to get to our highest mountain, God still has to come down. He's not going up to a mountain. To get to the highest place we could think of, God is still coming down because he's above everything. I and mean, who can stand under this kind of punishment? If mountains are going to melt and valleys are going to torn apart, like wax before a fire, like how, how are we going to survive this? Our place of life, our hope, is entirely removed And so why is God so passionate here? What's going on here? Verse 5 says, tells us why God is angry. All this is because of Jacob's transgression and because of the sins of the people of Israel. Now, if you remember from yesterday, uh, Jacob and Israel, those those are symbolizing the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So originally, when the nation of Israel was a thing, it was all one unified kingdom. But Jacob now symbolizes the north because the north broke apart because they didn't want to worship God. Now the south... Not in the best situation, either. Um, they're called Israel, so that's why there's a kind of separate separation there. Because the Jacob's transgression, um, what is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? Well, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, the capital of what Jacob stands for. So the capital uh, of what should have been uh, standing for worship of God, the capital now is something that's standing for something completely else, completely other, worshiping uh, idols. The capital that should have been a blessing to the nations now is a symbol of rebellion. So instead of being different to the people that are around them, they're exactly the same. They're out of alignment with God's love and the way that, that God called them to work. But the same is true of the south, because then he says, well, what is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? So uh, Judah is that southern kingdom. High places is, a, is where idol worship would happen and whatever kind of other gods, they all these other gods often, it was the tops of mountains where people would worship them. And so what is the idol worship of, Ju- of Judah? Where does that take place? Is it not Jerusalem? That's the capital. Jerusalem's supposed to be like God's holy city. That's not the case anymore. A supposedly Christian kingdom is not a place for worshiping God. It's a place for worshiping other gods. Now, for these other gods there are all sorts of ways to worship idols different gods apparently require different things from sex to child sacrifice and what might be in particular reference here in micah is uh, talking about the sex gods now also, ooh, we's talking about sex okay we're gonna pay attention here what's going on um i mean hey if you're a god and you want someone to worship you having sex as a way of worship that's you know that's a pretty easy way to get someone you know on your on your side to worship me you must have sex with people oh uh, okay Like, all right, tell me more about this. Well, this is how it would work. You'd go to a temple, you'd pay someone to have sex with them, and then that's worship. That's Sunday worship. A bit different than what we do here. But that's also why um, adultery or infidelity is often a metaphor for worshiping other gods other than the God. Because it wasn't a metaphor to begin with. Just like idol worship wasn't a metaphor to begin with. Like, God saying, I am your spouse, and you're acting like um, you're, pining off all, you're pining after all these other lovers, or you're, you're uh, you know, having adultery with all these other people, but you're forsaking me, your first love, because your, I'm your partner, I'm your spouse. The reason why God would talk in that way is because they were literally having sex for, to worship these other gods all the time. And so um, the idea didn't start as a metaphor, it was actual life. So God, who is a spouse, has been cheated on over and over and over. And he's been forgiving, but he's still been cheated on over and over and over. And he's been patient, but he's still been cheated on over and over and over. He's loving, he's faithful to people who are unfaithful. But there is a limit, because there is a judgment to come. And what we see is the result of this judgment. These next, in verses 6... And following it says, therefore, I'll make Samaria a heap of rubble. So the northern kingdom is a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. Basically, I'm going to reverse as if, as if Samaria has never been settled before. It's going to be a wilderness. The only thing that's good for now is, like, is crops. No more buildings anymore. I'll pour her stones in the valley. You can't really plant crops with stones. You've got to um, you gotta pick all the stones up in order to make crops grow. And lay bare her foundations. All the big buildings you thought would be there forever, the things that you thought were strong and sturdy, are going to be flattened. The idols are shattered, as are the hopes of all who put their trust in them. And then there's this very strange kind of uh, thing that Micah talks about. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used this goes back to that sex God idol worship thing so um, basically what's saying is so all the wages that the temple prostitutes made which would be like a, a priest or a priestess who basically function like a prostitute um, all of the wages that they made will be taken up will be stolen by these nations that are going to demolish you and they're going those outside nations are going to take that money back to their own land and use that for their own idolatrous worship so it's like this uh, th- this idol worship that happened here is going to be demolished and all that money that, that was changing hands and everything there would go back to their other to the original kind of country that's further away and they're going to use it for their own idol worship now samaria this uh, this nation in the, in the north was rich it had a lot of money to import the best looking idols their idols were probably silver and gold and not just kind of wood or clay these idols are going to be destroyed and the riches that those idols represented and that those idols would bring in are now going to go to these outside nations idol worship instead now, this isn't normal speech, right? We woke up in the morning today and was like, I really want to hear about God's judgment against idol worship. Yes. This isn't exactly, uh, yeah, not exactly a pick-me-up kind of text. Well, this kind of message is, is weird now, right? It's weird. We don't hear, this isn't a normal kind of way of speaking to each other. But it was also weird then. It was It was weird then because the idea that God cared about daily life is not something that all these other gods really cared about. Basically, the way to worship these other gods would be to, you could do whatever you, do, you want to do, as long as you go through the rituals that they want. So you show up to the temple, you have sex with the prostitute, or you, uh, you show up at the temple and you sacrifice a child, or whatever the thing might be. You can, as long as you get those rituals down, you can live any way you want to. But the God of the Bible is reversed. God of the Bible says, I care first about how you live your life, therefore what's going on in your heart first. And he actually refuses our ritual kind of worship, this kind of gathering stuff, if the rest of our lives aren't in alignment with his. So it's very different. And, and to have that kind of flip go on around this time where God actually cares about us first as people before his, the worship of himself was something that was weird then. So to hear this kind of thing of, oh, man, why is your God so angry at you? Oh, because, well, we're going to find out as we come for the rest of Micah because we're not merciful because we're not just and the, all the other outside nations would be like well that's weird why does he care about that like it would not even be a part of their normal system but God is different God cares about justice he cares about mercy And what we need to hear in our time is God cares very much about what we do with our lives. It's not this kind of laissez-faire thing where God is nice and lets us do what we want to do as long as we show up at the appropriate times and say whatever we ought to say. But God, as we're going to see in Micah, God has a passion for us to have the right hope. He has a passion for it to be a real hope. Because when we who are his people have hopes other than him, he has a passion to set it right. And if we don't heed his words to us, he will set us right one way or another. I think one other thing this shows is that punishment is real. So if all this is true, it's a call not only for us to live different lives for ourselves, but for those who follow Jesus. It's a sobering call to love people well. They're speaking the words of the gospel. Because this is just a small part of what ultimate punishment will look like. So when the Lord comes down, we find that the idols are shattered. There is no remnant for idols. There's nothing left for idols. There's nothing remains for the idols. Uh, a commentator on this this verse in verse 7 says this uh, humans feel secure as long as the long suffering God remains in heaven but when he marches forth in judgment they are gripped by the stark reality and gravity that they must meet the holy God in person God is fine as long as he's far away as long as he kind of remains doing his thing but once he actually comes face to face with me that's scary so when the Lord comes down, where is our security? Our hopeless hopes and idols can't stand under the pressures of life, let alone the king of creation. So in contrast to these idols who are going to be completely decimated, um, God's believing remnant that we'll get to later on for this talk can withstand any kind of outside circumstance. Nothing remains of these idols who worships them. It's been flattened, it's been demolished. If you're connected to any other God other than Yahweh, when He comes down, all other gods are gonna be crushed, as well as their worshipers Everything will be destroyed. When God meets people who say with their mouth but they worship him and don't actually live it out, he cares. When God meets people who are living in God's blessing but are and are but are not seeking him first and are not using that as a blessing to others, he cares. Now this is scary. It's meant to be. It's meant to be overwhelming. This is like horror. This is a horror genre but I think we can also say that is right. How could we expect God to care about justice but on terms that we set that benefit us the most? That's not right. God cares more about justice than we do, and the biggest injustice is placing our hope in anything else but him. And In this next section, it doesn't get any better. More hammers over our heads than the last eight to verses eight to the end of the chapter. Um, There's a list of these towns, and Micah gets uh, really specific here. This is not a happy situation, but it brings to mind a quote that I heard yesterday from T-Bone Burnett, who's this producer, songwriter guy. Um, He says, uh, It's a song that he was writing. He was saying, Everyone wants to know the truth, but nobody wants to be told. Yeah, that's me. I want to know the truth, but I don't want to be told the truth. I don't want to be under the pressure of that. Now, Micah is a master of ironic wordplay. I think he would have made a good Brit. I think it would have worked really well. The problem is because it's in Hebrew and we're reading in English, we lose a lot of, of, kind, of what he's, kind of what he's talking about. So with apologies to people who might know Hebrew well, all of you guys who are Hebrew scholars, um, verse 10 would uh, maybe sound a little bit like something like this. So, gat al-nagat. Uh, and then in beth-afra would be beth-la-afra-afar. So it's like the city, and then the sound, so there's like similar sounds, gat al nagat, betla afra, afar, supposed to sound similar. So there's similar sounds, I'm not going to go through all of it. Um, there's similar sounds, but then also um, similar in, in content and in meaning. I actually came across a paraphrase that tried to get this flavor. Basically it went like this, tell it not in Tellington, whale not in wailing, dust manor will eat dirt, dressy town will flee naked, Safe fold will not save. Walchester's walls are down. A bitter dose drinks Bitterton. Towards Jerusalem, the city of peace, the Lord sends war. So it's kind of this like constant kind of wordplay. Every single one of these towns has that like going on. We're not going to look at every single one in super depth, but as a nerd, I really appreciate that. So now we don't physically live in these places, and in fact, some of the commentators' jobs are trying to figure out. What place is he specifically talking about? Because it's not all like the proper place name for the places, because he has a play on words that's going on there. And we don't physically live in these places, but surely we find our spiritual homes in some of what these places are about. Spiritually, we've all taken residence in, uh, where is it, in verse 10, uh, in Bethlehephra, a.k.a. Dust Town, so people who live in dust town are going to end up rolling in the dust themselves. Dust town is a, uh, maybe a way of saying, choosing the riches of the world over and above God's way, denying the reality of suffering. Eventually, you will eat the dust of the earth. Shafir, a.k.a. Beauty Town, focusing on external beauty at the expense of internal beauty. Eventually, you're going to be shamed. Your external beauty will be put on, on a shameful display. Zainan, or Going Forth Town, Relying on one's own security and boldly going forth on your own strength. Eventually, the walls are going to collapse. Beth Ezel, aka Town with Supports. Any support not founded on the rock will fall away and become worthless. Maroth, or Bitter Town, Looking to the rulers of this world for relief from the hard parts of life. There will be a bitter end. Lakish, or Tech Town, The technology you trusted in to protect you from the outside world won't be enough to protect you from the worst when the worst comes. Morasheth or fleece town, where those who fleeced their flocks will one day be fleeced by others. Aksib or deceptive town, falsely placing confidences in those who will betray you. Marisha, or possession town, look to possessions gained from dishonest conquests, will one day be conquered ourselves. And the end of the road for people who live in these places is verse 16, the last word is exile. If your hope is found in these places for your home, you will find that one day you are not going to have a home. These are hopeless places to live. There's no hope for the future either, for the children. Shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. There will be no children. There's no hope now, no hope in the future for these places. Now, the people of Micah's time must have felt like they were staring down the barrel of a gun to hear this over and over and over what will the future be like but the same can be true of us as well like we have anxieties about the future we think doom is going to come there's a lot of anxiety about political systems a lot of anxieties about jobs or the economy um i mean for our family we want we want to be able to stay in the uk for as as, for the rest of our lives lord willing but if the political system changes maybe we're not able to i've no idea what if we tried to put our hope in that political system how anxiety producing could that be for our lives I mean, we all know politics, not the best safety there, right? I mean, what about the environment? I mean, the environment's maybe another great example. Like, all we see is data over and over and over. Like, our world is going to die, and nothing seems to change. Is our hope going to be in, in how much we can do for this world, or is our hope above something like, like that to be able to save us in this world? I mean, if you consider yourself to be part of liberal progressivism, you should be freaking out because the political system right now, the political climate, is not like that at all, either in America or in the UK or in Brazil or name, name, all, name the place you want to name. I think all the anxiety that we have about these things, is proof that our hope is in a kingdom without a, that is without a king. Wanting all the benefits of the good life that a kingdom can bring, satisfaction, security, and meaning, without surrendering to the only one who can actually give us those things. Another name for a kingdom without a king is called secularism. That's what secularism is. Wanting the kingdom but not wanting the king. And it's failing. Our anxiety is proof that secularism cannot stand up to its own promises. I mean, I think if you've been in the church for a bit, you you might have been told that secularism is this like unstoppable force that's going to come in and leave no room for the church, leave leave no room for belief, leave no room for Jesus. But it, it just isn't true. We've not seen that to be true. I think all the anxiety we have is a proof that it isn't true. And I think what we found is our hopes actually are more in secularism than we're comfortable with. Now, if your hope is in something like a kingdom without a king in the secularism and, and the power that you have in your own strength to get you what you want, then you will get what secularism can deliver. It can deliver temporary good for some people if you play your cards right and you're born the right way. It can deliver temporary satisfaction. No, if we're anxious all the time, how satisfied are we really? But when the Lord comes down, it all melts away. Secularism is not good news. It's bad news because it leaves us hopeless. And God does not want us to be without a hope. He wants us to live for something more because he knows that we're made for more. And our hopes are hopeless if they're not found in the Lord. So God knows that our best is found in the kingdom where he is reigning. And the full expanse of our hearts, the full expanse of our lives, the full expanse of our relationships, for us to be able to surrender all of that to the king, he knows that that's the best for us and he knows you can't get the kingdom without the king and the king is coming as Mike is telling us he's a king of judgment and justice but he's also a king of mercy and grace and our story does not have to end in exile that doesn't have to be the last word we don't have to live in hopelessness because the Lord breaks through if we turn to uh, chapter 2 the last two verses of chapter 2 Chapter one and two are this like big, massive, uh, kind of prophecy against us. And the end of chapter two is where God is giving His hope in the midst of it. He says, "I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I'll bring them together like sheep in a pen, like flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass before them. The Lord at their head." So there's two images here one of a shepherd who gathers and one of a, of a king who leads. And it's a common way of talking about the Messiah, of talking about the king, a shepherd king, someone who, who gathers and cares for his people, also someone who is, uh, who is on his mission and is leading his people. So let's just look at that shepherd um, uh, imagery first in verse 12. Basically, when God comes down and when everything melts, who is faithful? The remnant, the remaining people who worship God. When the secularism melts away, or when horrible things come in our lives, who are the people left worshiping God? This is the remnant, the people that God is gathering to himself. So he gathers the remnant and he protects them. Everything else is falling down. Armies have invaded. Disaster is here. The world is melting, but the Lord cares for his own and the shepherd cares for his sheep. A shepherd knows each one of his sheep. He's around them all the time. He cares for them. He gives them what they need. He gives them food. Gives them drink. When one goes astray, he pursues it to bring them back home. And home is safe. People are gathered together. We're not lonely. We're not separated by ourselves. We're all together, protected, safe, beyond whatever safety the sheep can find by themselves. And we also have a king, because this shepherd is also a king, and the king rescues us. The way before us seems impossible. If we were to just have chapter one, what hope could there possibly be? It seems hopeless, it seems futile. But the Lord breaks open the way, is what verse 13 says. He goes first. He's not sitting back from the comfort of his chair and being like, oh, you guys go ahead. I'll be there in a minute. He goes first. The arrows are going to hit him first. The swords will slash at him first. And that's exactly what Jesus did through his death. Because our hopes weren't set on him. He rescued us out of our captivity, and he went first. And the arrows did hit him. The swords did take him out. And he was put to death on the cross, broken on our behalf. and his blood poured out on our behalf because he goes first and he breaks through and he gives us what we need and he knows we are unable to give ourselves what we need. This king, this crucified king, went before us. He's also our rallying point. He's our rescuer. The king at our head is rescuing us from the onslaught leading us out of our hopelessness, and he was put to death so that we would never taste death. So the blood that Jesus poured out is all that's needed for us to be rescued. Nothing more. He's done it all. And the way that we get this rescue is through faith. Faith means to put our hope into something, put our trust into something, to surrender all of ourselves to the shepherd king. And that means we can be rescued from our hopelessness today. Because once we were set on our own abilities, ironically, setting ourselves on our own power leaves us powerless. But now, uh, instead of getting the gift of anxiety, now our hopes are set on Jesus, and we get the gift of care, gift of rescue. And so, as we'll all say in a moment, that we send to the cross all our guilt, all our shame, all our hopelessness. He's taken them all. He's gone before us, and it's finished. It also means that at the end of our lives, when we come face-to-face with God, when all of his passion for, for justice and his passion for his glory and his passion for us and his hope on him is unleashed on us, that same kind of passion that, that Micah is talking about is still, still there, still burning. Because of Jesus, we can stand. We won't be destroyed. We won't melt away. We're going to hear, well done. Well done, my daughter. Well done, my son. Through Jesus, we've now been given a new hope, one that isn't ultimately hopeless, a hope that can stand under the worst test that anyone can throw at it. I mean, I want to hope like that.
1: <laughs> I don't want to live a
0: hopeless life. It would be, wouldn't it be better if we were to like revolve our lives around that kind of hope? Surely that would be a better way to live instead of just something that's going to waste away. And this is what happens when the Lord breaks through. When the Lord comes, we're hopeless. We're hopeless unless our hope is in the Lord who breaks through. So let me pray.